Welcome to Brad Kyle's Brad's Motor Works podcast. We'll be talking about some things about BMW, some things of cars in general, and some things about car repair. I hope you find it educational, enlightening, and I hope it increases your understanding of your car. And maybe along the way we'll have some fun too. Thank you for listening, and here we go. Episode number 93, OBD2 and the Right to Repair Act. <clears throat> First off, I want to give uh, credit to uh, Matt. He's the one that came up with uh, uh, the idea for this particular um, episode. And uh, he had run across an article that was in a paper, which, of course, I, I knew, you know, was quite familiar with. But uh, it's something that was starting to hit some of the mainstream uh, media outlets as far as news and stuff. And so <clears throat> this is going to be a combination. <clears throat> Boy, excuse me. This is going to be a combination of some of my my own thoughts and words. I'm going to give you some quick background on what OBD2 is. I'm also going to be reading uh, just kind of a quick uh, article from Wikipedia. And then the most recent thing, I'll be reading from an article. Uh, and this is what uh, Matt had sent me a link for, um, from what's called Motherboard Tech by Vice. Okay, so I just want to give credit to those things. Um, and that particular article is the most recent and, um, you know, kind of bring you up to speed of, of where we are. So so <clears throat> what is OBD2? Well, uh, starting in about 1988, uh, at least this is with BMW, and I think most manufacturers started doing this, um, you know, pretty quickly after that. But prior to 1988, at least with BMW, there was no, quote unquote, onboard diagnostics. The cars were, yes, they were computerized or getting, you know, more so, okay, but frankly, it was really just for engine management uh, and transmission control, okay? <clears throat> that was really it. Everything else in the car, which, of course, now is is uh, grossly computerized, um, you know, things like uh, power windows and, and anything that had a switch or whatever, there was relays and so on and so forth. So it was all old school. But in 1988 with BMW, they went to onboard diagnostics, and there was a lot more computers in the car. And at the time, each manufacturer was allowed to have their own specific style of uh, diagnostic connector, okay? So this is where a, you know, your computer, and I don't mean a laptop, because again, this is 1988, folks. Um, your computer, you'd plug into the uh, diagnostic connector with BMW. It was what was called the 20-pin connector that was in the, en- uh, in the engine compartment. And you would have this, we had this huge, huge, uh, what was called the uh, ST2013, if I remember correctly. Um, the thing was just humongous, okay? It included a microfish reader, if you can believe that, and obviously a big screen. Um, and uh, that's what we, that's how we communicated with the car. Um, this thing was literally on a big roll cabinet. So it was nothing like what's available today, okay? And so we went along with that, uh, and then 1995 is when um, the EPA got involved, and they said, look, instead of having, you know, each manufacturer having their own version and style of diagnostic connector, um, we should make it where it's standardized, it's in a specific place in the car, and, you know, any tool that is designed for OBD2 will plug into it, and we go from there, okay? So that's some quick background, okay? Um, so, um, you know, like I say, basically what happened is the EPA got involved and they said, look, 
um, to be able to allow anyone as far as that has the proper equipment and hopefully the right training and knowledge and experience to be able to plug in with the right equipment and the EPA basically mandated that that by plugging in a computer that you had to at least be able to get into systems that had to do with emissions. So this was typically um, the engine management system and the transmission control system if the car had an automatic transmission. Okay, so it was up to the manufacturer if they were willing to uh, allow you to get into any of the other systems in the car. Now, BMW took sort of the, the idea that, hey, look, if we have to make this available for those two systems, let's just go ahead and make everything available, which was really good, okay? And they did that in the early 2000s, okay? So, and again, I think most of the manufacturers have gone that route, all right? If you have a proper scan tool that is rather expensive, you know, the idea of, of uh going out and spending 50 or or $100 for some little um, OBD2 code reader that you can put the app on your phone or whatever, all you're going to be able to read is the emission control stuff, uh, which are, and also those are generic codes. So in any case, um, let's start off with, this is from Wikipedia. This is called the Vehicle Owner's Right to Repair Act. Uh, the Vehicle Owner's Right to Repair Act, sometimes also referred to as Right to Repair, is a name for several related proposed bills in the United States Congress and several state legislatures which would require automobile manufacturers to provide the same information to independent repair shops as they do for dealer shops. Realize this is from uh, early on, um, like this is from about the early 90s, okay? Versions of the bill generally have been supported by independent repair and aftermarket associations and generally opposed by auto manufacturers and dealerships. First considered at the federal level in 2001, but no provisions were adopted until the Massachusetts legislature enacted right to repair bill H4362 on July 31st, 2012. This law was passed in advance of a binding ballot initiative referendum, which appeared on Massachusetts' statewide ballot also on November 6. The measure passed with 86% voter support. Because there were now two different laws in effect, the Massachusetts legislature enacted a bill, H3757, to reconcile the two laws. That bill was signed into law on November 26, 2013. Early in 2014, the Automotive Aftermarket Industry Association, Coalition for Auto Repair Equality, Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers, and the Association for Global Automakers signed a memorandum of understanding that is based on the Massachusetts law and which would commit the vehicle manufacturers to meet the requirements of the Massachusetts law in all 50 states. That's a good thing, folks. In February of 2019, the Right to Repair Coalition started a new public awareness ad campaign to update the Right to Repair law, which members claim is at risk because of wireless automotive technology, which could limit independent repair shops to information which dealerships receive. It's very important that you keep that in mind. What we're talking about here is the technology and the manufacturers are wanting to go from a plug-in connector, a wired plug-in connector, to being able to wirelessly access this information. Now, uh, on the, on the um, whatever you want to call it, it sounds like a great idea, and it is, 
okay? But there's some potentially there could be some issues, and I'll go into that further, but let's continue on. Background. The 1980, excuse me, 1990 Clear Air Act amendments required all vehicles built after 1994 to include onboard computer systems to monitor vehicle emissions. The bill also required automakers to provide independent repairers the same emissions service information as provided to franchise new car dealers. California further passed legislation requiring that all emissions-related service information and tools be made available to independent shops. Unlike the Clean Air Act, the California bill also required the car companies to maintain websites which contain all of their service information and which was accessible on a subscription basis to repair shops and car owners. Okay, BMW did that before they were required to do it as a for instance. Okay, I can certainly speak for sure about that. Okay, as automotive technology advanced, computers came to control the vital systems of every vehicle including brakes, ignition keys, airbags, steering mechanisms, and more. Repairing motor vehicles become, has become a high-tech operation, with computer diagnostic tools replacing a mechanic's observation and experience. These developments eventually made manufacturers the gatekeepers of advanced information necessary to repair or supply parts to motor vehicles. Legislation. The first right to repair bill was introduced in the United States Senate by Senator Paul Wellstone and in the House of Representatives by Joe Barton and Adolphus Towns in August 2001. The Senate bill described its goal as ending the unfair monopoly of car manufacturers maintaining control over repair information that could result in independent shops turning away car owners due to lack of information. <clears throat> Among the states where versions of the Right to Repair Act have been introduced is New Jersey, where it was first proposed in 2006 as A803, which was overwhelmingly passed 49 to 22 by the State Assembly in 2008. The bill did not make it through the Senate, State Senate before the legislature adjourned. Right to Repair bills also were considered in Connecticut, Illinois, New York, Oklahoma, and Oregon. You know, one of the problems with having this done on a state-by-state -state basis is that they could, each one of them could make their own uh, needs or qualifications. And can you imagine the, the almost ridiculousness of a car manufacturer having to build every car different for each state? Okay, that's insane. Okay, so obviously what we were all looking for was some kind of a national type of a standard and law. Support and opposition. In addition to support from the American Automobile Association, right to, repair, right to Repair's primary support is from the Automotive Aftermarket Industry Association, Coalition for Auto Repair Equality, and a number of state groups representing the repair industry. Initial opposition was from auto manufacturers who responded that the bill was unnecessary because of its work since 2000 through the National Automotive Service Task Force, a cooperative based on a pilot program in Arizona involving 63 organizations, including car makers plus auto service equipment and tool companies. Okay, so NASTEF is what we call it for short, which is the National Automotive Service Task Force. That was formed as a clearinghouse of information. It allows us as independent technicians or shop owners, or even for that matter, the consumer, it's a place where you can go to where if you can't get information of how to fix your car 
And, you know, this is assuming you've gone through paid subscription websites that all the manufacturers have available. Some of them are not cheap. But the bottom line is certainly BMW and I think most of the manufacturers, you know, they, they have they have websites. And, yes, there is a fee involved, okay, but the information is available. The tools are available. Of course, you have to pay for all of those, okay, if you want to work on your car, okay, or if a shop wants to do that, okay. Uh, nothing's free, okay. Um, so let's continue onward. The debate. In May of 2001, NASTEF established a website providing reference for all technicians on obtaining service information and tools from manufacturers. In October of 2001, carmakers announced their commitment to correct any remaining gaps by January 2003. According to a letter from representatives of the ASA, which is the Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers, the AAM, which is the Association, I'm sorry, AAM is, okay, Association of International Automotive Manufacturers, in August 2002, a voluntary agreement was reached between them for auto manufacturers to provide independent repair shops the same service and training information as franchise dealerships. Reaching a final agreement in September of 2002, the Automotive Service Association, representing a number of independent repair shops, withdrew its support for the bill. CARE was not party to the agreement. Okay. And I'll talk about why they withdrew report, uh, their support of it. Okay. Neither AAIA nor CARE were party to the agreement. Both groups pointed to the fact that absent legislation or law, there was nothing to compel the vehicle manufacturers to comply with the terms of the voluntary agreement should right-to-repair legislative efforts disappear. Consumer Reports has expressed skepticism about the proposed bill, noting that its analysis showed the problem affects a minuscule 0.2% of auto repair customers. Consumer Reports also noted that the ASA said the NASTEF had mostly filled the information gap. Consumer Reports also argued that releasing understandably secret details about vehicle security, smart key codes, and engine immobilizer drives would be a mistake. The Highway Loss Data Institute also wrote in a letter to Representative Bart Stupak an expansion of access to information regarding passive anti-theft devices. It, and I quote, would be naive to expect the security of the information to remain uncompromised, unquote. However, in April 2005, Consumer Reports article providing repair tips to consumers stated that a federal bill, the Right to Repair Act, would help independents because it would require automakers to provide them with technical information they need to compete with dealers. In a letter requested by John Dingle, ranking member of the House Energy and Committee and Commerce Committee, the FTC noted of 6,786 complaints relating to auto parts and repairs it had received between January 1, 1996 and May 16, 2006, only two complaints were relevant, and there were none relating to the inability of co consumers or independent auto repair shops to acquire the equipment needed to repair cars. In fact, a 2005 survey of repair shops performed by the Terrence Group found that 59% of respondents had problems getting access to repair information or needed tools necessary for repairs, and 67% reported that they had been forced to send vehicles back to the dealer. Okay. Uh, this next part is my own words based on my experience. Um, when, when these laws were put into effect, these bills and a memorandum of, under, of understanding, 
I, I think the manufacturers are pretty good about stepping forward and making all of this information available, but it's available at a price, okay? I've been in meetings and seminars where some shop owners thought that it should be all free, okay? They just thought, well, it, we should just be able to look it up on a website and it just it should be all free. That's really kind of ridiculous, in my opinion, okay? I mean, years ago, if any of you that are listening to this, if you, you know, if you've been, if you're older, if you kind of remember, you've been around a, a shop or maybe you've even known a shop or you work as a technician. But, you know, we used to have what was called Chilton and Motor Manuals, okay? These were huge volumes. I mean, a shop that was working on anything, they could have almost a whole room full of these volumes of information about cars. Well, guess what? That wasn't free. We had to pay for that as a shop owner. If you want to go out and buy a service repair manual for your car, which you probably can't really do anymore as far as a paper version, you'd probably be getting like a DVD. You're going to pay for it, right? I mean, why would the manufacturer, if they've taken the time to put all that information together and make it available, should they have to give it away? I don't think so. But you know, initially there were shop owners that felt, well, we shouldn't have to pay for it, and that uh, they they thought that some of these specialized tools were too expensive as well. Okay, well, that's that's a a, a choice that, you, that a business owner has to make. Where if they're going to start working on a particular brand of car, then they, then maybe they need to make an investment as far as to buy the proper tools to be able to work properly on the car. Okay, so. I think, you know, all in all, we've come a long way, and I think a lot of this information is definitely available, and it is available. The reason I'm doing this is because this article I'm about to read, because what's happening is, and those of you that watch the news or maybe even know about Tesla as a, for instance, they have what's called over-the-air software updates, okay? So when your car is parked, probably at night, and it's being charged, um, there is going to be, the car is, is, is never completely off. And this is true really of any uh, car, you know, newer car, okay? They're never really completely 100% absolutely shut down. The only way that happens is if you disconnect the battery, okay? Other than that, there's computers that are, that are coming on and off in the background. And so Tesla is one of the ones that they're doing this over-the-air wireless software updates, they're doing this to either fix what are found out to be known problems or they've decided that, hey, we're going to change the way this particular function works. We're going to make it better. At least they think it's better. And they do a software update to how a particular system works, okay, which means that, you know, your car, you could be used to how things work in your car one day and the next day you go out to drive it and a particular system or a particular function of how something works has been changed overnight, and you didn't really have a choice in it. But the issue is, and this is where uh, it's getting interesting, is that the original law that I just talked about was written, and it specifically talks about this information has to be available through this plug-in OBD2 wired connector. That's all that it covers, okay? Because of technology advancement and all the rest of it, the, the issue is that the car manufacturers are going to what's called telematics. This is wireless flow of information, okay? And this is where we start potentially having a problem, is that because in the original OBD2 and Right to Repair Act, it does not specifically say and cover the idea of wireless transmission of information, 
okay? And so as time goes by, if we as consumers and as an industry in regards to the independent repair shops, and this is not only just in the U.S., but this is obviously worldwide, uh, if we don't take care of this and, and get this properly handled, as time goes by, what will happen is that the only people that will be have that information available to them is the manufacturer, okay? So, um, like I say, it's called telematics. And if you want to know more about that specifically, I did a previous podcast. It's episode number 39, and it's it's called Telematics in Your Car, Friend or Foe, okay? And in that podcast, I talk about how... Uh, Again, it sounds like a really neat deal, and it can be, but essentially what can and will happen is that your car, when you first buy your brandy new car, the telematics in that car are set up to communicate with the dealer and or the manufacturer of the car, okay? So the car will now tell, let's say, your local dealer, hey, I'm due for a service, or I have this problem, or whatever the case may be. And so the idea being is that the... the a uh, local dealer can now n- know that something is going wrong with your car or that it's due for a service. Potentially, they could send you an email or something to that effect, and maybe even the car and, and them would actually set up an appointment time that you verify. Uh, the idea being to where supposedly that because the manufacturer and or the dealer now has this information of a particular fault that's going on that they could actually order parts ahead of time so that way you know it expedites the entire repair that's the pie in the sky the gee whiz wow this is great type deal okay what they're not talking to you about and this is what i talk more about in that podcast i just mentioned about uh, podcast number uh, episode number 39 is the amount of data that's going to be flowing from your car Okay. Uh, people don't realize it necessarily, but when you, when you have your phone via Bluetooth connected to your car, potentially all of the data that's in your car, excuse me, in your phone, is accessible to the car, which means it's potentially accessible to the manufacturer, okay, to whoever uh, built your car, okay. Uh, it has been stated that in the future that the value the money value of the amount of data that the car manufacturer can get from your car, from you, through your phone, will have more dollar value than the profit they made off the sale of the car. Okay. We're talking about potentially anything and everything that's in your phone, okay, is open to them. Okay. So, obviously, as a consumer, as the owner of the car, you should have the right, and this is the reason for this podcast, you should have the right to decide that, sure, when that car is still under warranty, okay, uh, the odds are that it's probably going to be connected to the manufacturer and to the local dealer because it's still under warranty, okay? I could see that part of it happening, okay, and they they probably have a right to do that, but it once that car goes out of warranty, you should have the right to decide who's going to get that information, okay? Because it is your information, okay? The car manufacturers don't look at it that way. They literally look at it as that we built a car, it's our software, we own it, okay? And um, because we own it, you don't. It's, it's our car, or there's parts of that car that are theirs, that's the way they look at it, okay? 
uh, obviously the consumer is not going to look at it that way. Uh, they're going to look at it as, hey, look, I bought this. It now is mine. And, you know, I should be able to do whatever I want with it. Of course, the issue is, and again, this is another reason for this podcast, is that when we start talking about uh, security issues, and I'm talking about the car security and immobilizer systems and safety systems and airbag systems and all this kind of stuff, okay, I certainly can understand the manufacturer not wanting you, the consumer, to be able to screw around with that because you could end up making the car unsafe. You cause an accident or have an accident and things don't work the way they're supposed to. Someone's going to get sued, okay? And it's going to be the manufacturer and anybody who ever probably ever worked on that car, possibly, okay? So there's a part of me that understands why the manufacturer wants to lock this information down, okay? But... The, the issue is is that this is coming up to where when as cars become and use telematic systems, there's potentially going to be some problems because as the way that bill is written right now and these systems go wireless, um, as it stands right now, you as the consumer could, can potentially have a situation where you no longer have a choice. Okay, unless we as an industry, the automotive independent automotive repair industry and parts suppliers and all the rest of it and consumer. Uh, you know, associations that have consumer interests in mind, uh, we have to go after this, okay? So, um, as part of NASTEF, let me just throw this in there, as part of that NASTEF, which is the National Automotive Service Task Force, there is also what's called SDRM, which is Secure Data Release Model, and there's also what's called VSP, which is Vehicle Security Professional. There is already, through NASTEF, those two uh, names I just mentioned, those are already uh, systems and procedures and qualifications that are in place that for if, let's just say, that a car, an independent repair shop wants to fix like an immobilizer system, okay, they have to be registered and paid a fee and prove that they are a professional repair shop before, let's say they buy a component, that can, and that component needs to be coded and initialized with the car. And there may be, part of that process may be to have what's called enabling codes that are only available from the manufacturer to make that system work in that car, okay? Well, the manufacturer doesn't want to release those enabling codes unless they know that the person they're releasing them to is not only qualified, but that they're actually an independent repair shop. They're an actual repair professional, and they're not somebody who's simply trying to hack into the car. Okay, so there are there are already uh, policies and procedures and entities in place that uh, you know only allow professionals to access some of this information to be able to repair your car. Okay, so keep that in mind. Okay. However, this next article is from Motherboard. It's Tech by Vice. This just came out September 29th of 2020. Okay. So, the auto industry has spent $25 million lobbying against right-to-repair ballot measure. Car manufacturers are vehemently fighting legislation that would ensure independent repair companies could continue to work on your car. Okay. The measure, called Question 1, interesting uh, uh, title, will be on the ballot in November. And if it passes, independent repair stores will be able to 
able to access car data wirelessly to help facilitate vehicle repairs. The fear is that car manufacturers will move away from the wired data port used to diagnose car problems, which would prevent independent companies and car owners from assessing what's wrong with the car. A coalition of auto manufacturers have spent more than $25 million in the state to defeat the measure. The lobbying group behind the big push is the Coalition for Safe and Secure Data, an arm of the Automotive Alliance for Innovation, which is funded by car manufacturers like General Motors, Ford, Toyota, Nissan, Honda, Hyundai, and Subaru. A lot of the money is going to airing terrifying advertisements that imply criminals could access your data should question one pass. Okay, so in other words, if they are bound to make it uh, simpler or to, to access the information, the idea being the threat is, and I will say it's potentially a, a possible threat, is that someone who wants to hack your car could potentially do that, okay, for whatever reason. Maybe they want to get the information out of it. Maybe they want to screw with your safety systems. Maybe they want you to cost you to have an accident, okay. So, the manufacturers are going, you know, way off to one side of playing the what-if game. And the, the independent repair associations and consumer associations and parts manufacturers associations are saying, look, we already have a mechanism in place to where that really can't happen, okay? Um, there's already the SDRM and all the rest of it in place, okay? We're, all we're simply doing is making is, is re-advising or re-updating the bill to show that there's a right to repair in regards to information that's transmitted wirelessly, okay? So, question one would simply allow the same access to the same people via the wireless tools that are becoming increasingly common in modern cars. The Massachusetts Right to Repair Committee, a lobbying group that supports the passage of Question 1, has also raised a lot of money in the state. Supporters have raised more than $15 million from companies like AutoZone and Advanced Auto Parts. It goes without saying that competition for vehicle repair and maintenance services from independent repair shops keeps the cost of, repair and serv cost of service and repair down. Secure Repairs, a group of security and repair professionals who advocate for security and repair issues, said in a recent post on its website, quote, It also makes perfect sense that the same mechanical data shared via a wired connection from a vehicle to a computer in a repair shop should also be accessible wirelessly. That's why automakers are anxious to change the subject, unquote. Meaning, they're anxious to change the subject by by implying that uh, your car can be hacked, okay? That's the, that, that's the subject they're changing to, is they're trying to use scare tactics, okay? Uh, what they don't want to talk about is how that you should still have uh, the right and the availability of to be able to access this information, okay? Groups such as the Massachusetts Right to Repair Committee and Secure Repairs fear that the failure of Question 1 at the ballot in November will help automakers build and maintain a monopoly on repair. If a mechanic can't access the data in your car, they may not be able to remake a repair and you'll be stuck taking it to the dealership which can charge whatever they want because they'd have a monopoly on it. Okay. According to Secure Repairs, the auto industry's ads raises, raise questions about automakers' ability to keep data secure, regardless of which mechanics can access it. 
Rather than trying to frighten consumers, car makers should make owners assess to this data easy, while also being transparent about what data they are collecting from smart vehicles and how they use it. Secure Repairs said on its website. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. Um, there's, you know, there's a huge amount of information that flows from a car. This is another reason why, um, you know, as much as some people don't agree with it or think it's going to be horrible, that it potentially causes health issues and stuff like that. This is why 5G wireless technology is becoming, you know, why the, the wireless technology people, um, you know, want to make 5G the standard, okay? It's because what we currently have will not have the capability of allowing the, the amount of data flow that can occur through 5G, okay? I'm not an expert on any of this, so I'm, I'm only going to talk about what I know, okay? But the bottom line is, is that for autonomous vehicles, true level 5 autonomous vehicles to ever come to fruition, part of what's going to be needed besides all the technology to make the car work is we're going to have to have a 5G network because the amount of data that's going to be flowing between cars to be able to make them work properly, okay, is going to be just huge. Okay, so 5G, not just for the consumer where you can, you know, stream live movies or whatever, stream movies and all this other stuff. It's not just about what the consumer wants to do. It's all of this data flowing in the background. Okay, and certainly lots of people want it. Um, it's the only way that, that true autonomous cars are going to work properly going into the future. Okay, whatever that means. But in any case, on this particular podcast, um, you know, just wanted to bring this all to your attention. And obviously, if you're listening to this in another country, um, you know, you guys, uh, you know, keep in mind that whatever laws or you do or don't have in the country of, of, of your residence, um, you know, it, it's something to maybe keep an eye on. Uh, maybe in the country you live in, you don't have the right to access any of this information. I don't know. You know, uh, here in the U.S., uh, we, we went that route, and yes, it works. Um, it works quite well. Um, the, the information and, and the ability to be able to have with the proper tooling and commitment and education and training and, and experience, um, you know, you can certainly fix most, if not all, things on a, on a car, even a late model car, okay? Um, but if this question one uh, does not pass on the ballot, and car manufacturers are definitely going wireless with this information. Uh, the idea being is that that OBD2 connector I talked about will disappear. Okay. So the only way to access any information in the car will be wirelessly. Okay. So this is extremely important that you keep an eye uh, on this ballot issue. And I know, you know, <laughs> in the, at the time of this podcast, it's currently, uh, what, October 3rd of 2020. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in this country, in the U.S. We all know about that. And uh, this might seem like a, you know, no big deal considering some of the other stuff going on. But uh, it certainly has ramifications down the road. And, um, you know, you it's something you, you're going to want to keep an eye on. And hopefully now I've educated you a little bit. You know what's kind of going on. And, um, you know, I hope you found it enlightening. Uh, I want to make a mention that, I recently uh, started up a Patron or Patron uh, 
uh, you know, system on my website through Podbean as far as in regards to the different podcasts. The vast majority of them are still available for free, but I did make some that I felt were, if you listen to them and applied the information I give you, uh, they could save you thousands of dollars. And so some of them have become to where if you want to download them, they, they are available for a fee. I'm basically asking $5 a month, and that uh, gives you complete access to all of the episodes. Uh, you know, up to you. I appreciate any any kind of help or donation with that. And, um, you know, like I say, it, it makes it available where you get all of the episodes uh, versus uh, right now. You know, they're all available to play. But if you want to download one of the ones that's uh, available through Patreon, um, then it's, you know, $5 a month. And then we go from there. So I appreciate your time. Appreciate you listening. I hope you got something out of this thing and I didn't bore you to death. Um, and again, as usual, if you want to get a hold of me via email, it's bkpodcasts5 at gmail.com. I'm also available through LinkedIn. And um, we go from there. I appreciate your time listening. I hope you got something out of it. Um, you know, take care of yourself out there and stay healthy. And, and let's, uh, let's be concerned about one another, okay? Uh, let's show some love and concern. And as much as we're not supposed to reach out and, and touch somebody, but, you know, sometimes maybe you can do that just through your eyes. Um, and, um, you know, give somebody an elbow bump or something and, and say hi to them. And uh, go from there. So appreciate your time. Hope you have a great day and a fantastic tomorrow. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been an honor and a privilege to spend time with you. I hope you found this of value. Please share it with family and friends. Above all else, with all you're getting, get understanding. May God bless you and keep you. And thank you again.